This presentation is from Service Design Canberra 2016. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. I have the pleasure of introducing our first speaker for the day. Um, I've known Jess for nine... We were a little vague on this uh, last night, but it's probably been nine years or so. Um, first had an opportunity to sit down and actually talk with him about this kind of stuff way back in 2009 in Memphis at the IA Summit. Um, we've since been able to catch up on a number of occasions. But over that time, Jess has stepped out and focused very much on how do we design services, in particularly public services, with the citizen or the public at the heart of that design process. He's made a career out of it since. He has worked around the world helping uh, government and public departments in various forms reorient themselves to design from the outside in in the same way that we're seeing organisations design services from the outside in right across the spectrum of public and private uh, commerce. So... It is my very great pleasure to have him here at one of our events for the very first time. Please join me in welcoming Jess McMullen to the stage. All right, let's see. How are we doing on our mic? Good? Good. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Donna, both for inviting me so that I get to come hang out with you guys, and also uh, so that all of this works so smoothly and so well. So a uh, big round of applause for our organizers. So uh, Jess McMullen, I have a, a company called Situ Strategy. I started uh, a practice called the Center for Citizen Experience to help governments uh, understand the practice of design and innovation in improving uh, citizen experience, which uh, has some distinctions from customer experience, but that's really not what I'm here to tell you about today. Um, that I'm really going to talk about shifting from service design to service transformation. Uh, that uh, when we talk about service design, that that practice has had a certain set of canonical things that it does, a certain set of, of sort of usual suspects, but that we need to actually go beyond that. So I'm going to talk a little bit about how we've been trying to do that in some of the places that I work. Now, I live in Canada in a city called Edmonton, which is about here. The flight is not direct. <laughs> but, uh, um, and uh, it gets much colder. Uh, but uh, I work mostly with clients in North America, and I, I speak and I teach workshops uh, wherever people are so kind to invite me. Um, sometimes in-house and so sometimes at conferences like this. Of the government digital service. Uh, and uh, when we talk about transformation, uh, this is actually my favorite clip, the one that I'm going to show you next. This is in the UK House of Commons. It's Francis Maud. He's the minister in charge of the government digital service. Now, if you work in the private sector, these same principles apply just as much to you, though most of my examples are from the public sector. So of the government digital service, which is committed to ensuring that as we uh, reform the delivery of public services, they are designed around the needs of the user rather than has been far too often the case in the past, being designed to suit the convenience of the government. Gary Streeter. So that sounds really good. We're going to design things so that they are meeting the needs of the user rather than to suit the convenience of the government or the convenience of the enterprise. That's fantastic that that was said in the House of Commons. And I'm still waiting to see a politician in Canada make a similar public commitment. Um, um, that, uh, unfortunately, Francis Maud has moved out of that file and we, we don't have him anymore um, working there. But that... Um, it's easy to say we're going to reform public services. We're going to transform public services. What does that really mean? We use that word a lot. What does transformation mean? So this is my definition. Service transformation is the required change that we need to make, both 
organizationally and systemically so that those changes become embedded in a long-term fashion, so that they're in a sustained, ongoing impact on the strategy of the organization, the structure of the organization, and the operations of the organization. If it's not that, then it's not really transformational. It's really just a thing you did, uh, if it didn't stick. And so there's a question also of did you do something, but was it just at the surface? Or did it actually start to permeate through the different ways that the organization acts? So when I talk about transformation, at least for this morning, that is what I'm talking about. So it's clear when you think about that, that some of our traditional deliverables in service design, like experience maps and journey maps and service blueprints, aren't sufficient for that kind of deep organizational transformation. Um, they're good, they can certainly be a beginning to that, but they're insufficient in and of themselves. And so when we think about sort of service design, we often think about producing deliverables like this. Where do we go beyond that to have that kind of transformation happen? So the reason we are talking about increases in transformation is because we have rising complexity in the world. So there's an increased demand for that. It's not just because it's a buzzword. Well, part of it is because it's a buzzword but it's really because of the rising levels of complexity in the world. I'm gonna tell you a story. This is the hospital where my two younger children were born. I have four kids. Two younger children were born here. Uh, it's a, a 10 minute drive normally. If uh, your wife's contractions are really close together, it's a lot shorter. Um, <laughs> and uh, um, in the last two years, the maternity ward has been closed twice and do you call it the emergency or any here? Emergency. emergency has been closed once because of broken water pipes. And they've flooded. And so uh, Alberta, the province that I live in, is one of the richest places in the Western world. Um, it's an oil province for a long time until the last couple of years. Everything was really, really well taken care of. But that kind of maintenance had been deferred, and now it's really hard to fix. And the reason for that impact on healthcare is because of that oil price. It's, <laughs> I think that chart might even be a little optimistic today. <laughs> Anyways, um, and so the impact in my community's healthcare actually is a consequence of these multiple interconnected factors that. Uh, led to that collapse in oil prices. Now, you say, well, I don't live in an oil state. What does that matter to me? The thing is that none of us live in isolation from the impacts of an increasingly complex world. You can't opt out of it. You can't say, oh, well, uh, you know what? Are there any Americans here, by the way? Awesome. <laughs> the things that happen in the US, they don't matter that much, do they? <laughs> we'll be OK, won't we? And, uh, and you, can't, you can't opt out of that. There will be consequences of some of those decisions that will impact your life. And, uh, and so you, that's true of all kinds of things in the world, that we have an increasing connection globally that demands that we think about deeper transformation. So we need to have innovation, but then transformation to actually embed that inside what we do. So it's not just about the, the rocket launch, it's actually about all the things that happen to, to get that to, hap, uh, to uh, pull off in the first place. Organizational innovation and transformation actually has a lot more to do with archaeology than it does to do with rocket science, though. Uh, if you start on a transformation project, there will probably be a time when you feel like this. So... As the boulder comes for you, as you scramble to get out of the way, and then as you realize that you have stepped into someone else's territory and they're not very happy about it. <laughs> now, really, it's not as much that kind of archaeology uh, or cultural appropriation. Uh, as much as this kind of archaeology, where you're going to move a mountain with a paintbrush, and it's surprising, and there's mysteries, and you don't know why you do something that way. Um, 
until you're like, really? We do that because 20 years we needed to solve this problem? And oh, ever since we've done it that way. And I truly believe every large organization, public sector and private, ends up in the state that it is because of that. Somebody made a really smart decision. Somebody right now, today, is making a really smart decision about solving an immediate problem and might be in a rush or they might have a particular exception. And so they do that and they be like, oh, we'll fix it later. Or that's what we need to do right now and we'll revisit it. And they just don't. And 20 years later, you're like, why do we do that? And nobody knows. Um, and so you have to be an archaeologist inside the organization sometimes to untangle the things before you can do the shiny rocket science of whatever new uh, service innovation you want to, to tackle. So as we transform organizations, we need new perspectives and new tools in order to do that. And so I'm going to talk about some of those perspectives and tools uh, in seeing and responding to complexity in the world. So uh, if you don't see that complexity, it introduces a lot of risk to your organization. It makes it really difficult for you to be able to uh, anticipate and to be able to manage when things happen. It's kind of like hanging out on the edge of a cliff. Now, I'm scared of heights. And uh, this picture, I just look at it and I kind of cringe a little bit. <laughs> so imagine that you're there, no harness, no rope, no gear, you're just dangling off the edge of the cliff. That is our projects if we do not have tools to address complexity. Those tools are the safety harnesses, the safety gear for actually doing transformation. We need to be able to, to have those to be able to safely navigate that and not get run over by the boulder of organizational politics and inertia and, and other things like that. Now, Dave Gray, and actually Mike Kuniaski said the same thing separately, says products are service avatars. And uh, so if you look at a, a given product, then, say, my clicker, it, it actually represents a broader service. Nobody is interested in a clicker all by itself. I, like, that might... Maybe whoever designed it has a copy at home to show their mom. But, <laughs> but in and of itself, if I said, here's this clicker, are you just going to like throw it in the sock drawer? Well, you might. But that, uh, that what's the point of the clicker? What does the clicker represent? What do you use it for? Yeah, for presentation. So the clicker is an avatar for the service of learning and education. So, um, so you look at the product and you say, what is this actually doing in people's lives? And it ends up so that you look at that saying, okay, there's a service of a presentation where uh, there's some learning and education happening. If you then look at a service, it starts to say, well, what about the system as a whole? So services are systems avatars. If you look at a particular service, you can now look at a system. If you look at this talk as part of the conference, the conference as part of UX Australia, UX Australia as part of a community of design practitioners within Asia Pacific, um, you start to see some connections. And then if you see that community and the impacts that you guys make in your day-to-day -day work, you come back into affecting public services and private services that are delivered all across the world. So from a clicker to a service to the world. Um, and so as we think about systems, we need to look for other places to learn about those. That, that, uh, those complex adaptive systems are really what run the world. They're not easy to predict. They're not easy to design for. But there are some tools and ways of thinking about that. I'm going to show you um, two in particular from other places and then one that we've been playing with. So you can look at complexity theory in general to learn a lot of interesting things about different kinds of, of systems and how they work. Um, and one useful tool to do that is a framework called Kinevin. Now, I think that Kinevin, this is a Welsh word, 
would be much more popular if it was easier to pronounce. <laughs> but Dave Snowden, who came up with it, is Welsh. And, uh, and so if you, go to, if you uh, Google Cognitive Edge or follow uh, at Snowdead, not at Snowden, then they'll find out about the NSA, but uh, <laughs> um, at Snowdead, uh, D-E-D, um, then that's where you can learn more about this. But I'm going to show you the Kinevin framework. So the Kinevin framework says not everything is the same. Um, that there are different domains that projects work in and different ways of, of actually um, not just looking at the world, but that the world presents itself to you. So there's this obvious domain where cause and effect is repeatable. So I can, if I drop the clicker, it's going to go down. If I let my kids stay up really late and watching TV, next day they're going to be cranky. Um, <laughs> That, that there's a really simple cause and effect. It's easy to look at and it's easy to predict. Now, if we go up here, complicated. So cause and effect are separated over time and space. We can still predict it, but we actually have to go out and look at it and understand how all these different moving parts come together, and maybe do some analysis to understand the thread of going through something. So. Um, a couple days ago, when I flew to Canberra from Sydney, I struggled because I hadn't realized that I was on a little tiny plane. And so my luggage limits were running into problems. And I had a number of other challenges. And if we looked at that, we're not going to take the time to analyze my trip now, but we could tease that apart and look at the different pieces that led to that challenge. And it's like, I've never traveled domestically in Australia before. I uh, wasn't aware, I had to pack a bunch of stuff because I was doing multiple workshops over the week. Um, and so we can look at all of those points and say, oh, okay, now we could be better prepared next time. We can analyze it and kind of fix it next time we run into that. Complex things, cause and effect, you can only see in retrospect. You can only look back and say, oh, that makes sense now, but you can't predict it. And it's not easy to fix next time because it's not always repeating. It's, it's not always the same situation, even if it looks similar. And so uh, that can be a lot more challenging. And then chaos, cause and effect, you really can't perceive a, a, a difference between them. The important, then there's a, a fifth one, which is disorder, which is just different than chaos, of just, uh, say, panic. <laughs> um, but the, that, the thing about this is that you can apply best practice in the obvious domain, but that's the only place that best practice works. You can apply good practice in a complicated domain. You cannot apply previous practices from somewhere else in the complex domain. And transformation almost always takes us into the complex. Sometimes, if you're panicked, like maybe in our friends in the States right now, um, or. That makes me think that there's people who aren't friends in the States right now. But anyways, that there's, there's a, um, that sometimes you just have to act and then uh, gain some clarity there. Uh, Jay Bloom, uh, who you can follow on Twitter, at Saitane, uh, says it kind of boils down to this. What solution should we use? What problem are we trying to solve for complicated? What question are we exploring for complex? What direction should we head for chaos? And for disorder, just WTF, where are we? <laughs> um, so that's Kinevin. You can Google it if you can spell it. <laughs> Another practice, uh, systemic design. Uh, and there's a whole community. There's a conference called Relating Systems Thinking and Design, and that uh, they just had uh, their event in Toronto next year. It's in Oslo, and it's a, all about taking design and systems thinking and say, how do they inform each other? And um, one of the most interesting sort of deliverables that they work on is something called a gigamap, and that's really pioneered by this guy. His name's Björger Sevoldsen, and he's at the architecture uh, school in Oslo and is one of the sort of uh, founding figures in this movement. And he says... Basically, what happens if you make a really big poster about everything you know? <laughs> it's 
So that's a gigamap. And he actually has some more structure to it than that. But these are some examples from his students um, looking at energy use and uh, shifting to electrical vehicles. Um, I don't speak Norwegian, so I don't know what this says. <laughs> and then uh, looking at different kinds of design and design research and understanding that. So being able to look at that big picture and to condense that knowledge and to have a, some shared reference for it is a way to start to, to grapple with a complex system. Ultimately, though, service transformation is organizational transformation. And so I'm going to talk about that. Uh, we have something called the service architecture framework that's a, a another way to see complexity inside organizations. The BC natural resource sector, which is five different ministries in the uh, British Columbia government uh, in Canada, uh, wanted to have this big IT thing. Every, you had to have uh, a different, you had to have different interactions with each ministry to get a permit to do the same thing. So I want to do something on this piece of dirt. I need to talk to you and you, and you, and you, and you. And in fact, you're going to tell me to do different things and have different timelines and different fees. And so it takes a long time before, and, and I'm often frustrated by the time I get to the third or fourth person. So they're saying, we should have one permit, one process, should be simple. As they started on this really large IT project, they realized one of the reasons that all those differences existed is because they were embedded in the legislation that governed each ministry. So those timelines were actually the law. It wasn't just an arbitrary thing. It was like, oh, when we made that law, we thought 45 days would be a good amount of time for people. And over here, we thought 60 days would be good. And here, we thought 30 days would be good. And so they had to go through a legislative harmonization project. They had to fix the law in order to do the IT and organizational transformation. Um, and, uh, and so service architecture is about thinking about challenges like that. Where else is going to impact your project that you might not anticipate? So there's three by three layers. If you can count, that's six layers, but... Uh, <laughs> but I could not get a cubed cake. <laughs> the, uh, and this is something I've been working on with my friend Alex McLennan, uh, who's uh, an executive in the BC provincial government. So, uh, and I've tweaked it since what, what we worked on. There's three layers. Delivery, where we think about the experiences that people have, the interactions that they have at different touch points, and the operations that support that. So that's how we actually are delivering a service. But that sits on top of, and we are going to publish these slides. Uh, I believe I am being recorded right now, but I'm not sure if, if we're not. Um, oops. <laughs> but, uh, um, so, so this is how we actually deliver services. But that sits on top of foundations of infrastructure, what do we have technically for space, for logistics? What do we have as far as decision DNA? So for policy and legislation, uh, for governance, for standards, uh, of how do we actually make decisions in this organization? And then uh, what are our structures and incentives? Not only our sort of org chart, but our relationships with other people, um, our relationships with partners and suppliers, and what gets rewarded and punished both uh, formally and informally. Um, and then all of that sits on top of bedrock of the mandate of the organization, of like, what do you say that you're about? What is it that you think your purpose is? Why are you there? And uh, what's the formal sort of vision or mission uh, for, for what you're doing? What are your values? Um, I've worked in several organizations where there's nice little values cards that employees tuck in their wallets and say, these are our five values. Um, and... Uh, at the same time, whether or not those are really your values depends on the world that you're in and the organization you're in. So that's where we get to culture. What are those values like actually in use? And uh, what are those unwritten rules? And what's the context that you're in? What's the bigger world? So delivery realizes value. Foundations support value. And bedrock defines value. 
So to work effectively um, in that, there's some things that you need to realize. Uh, so each of those elements moves at a different speed. Um, and any of you guys are run into Stuart Brand's pace layering before, other than people who are at the Information Architecture Summit that he keynoted? Brad? Okay. So the idea of pace layers is it's a way of diagramming a system that shows the different speed that different things move at. And so we can take those same elements and we say the things on the outside move faster. Just like if we were looking at a record player, the outside moves faster, or at a merry-go-round. Um, so context changing all the time, experiences change quickly, interactions change quickly, operations not as quick, infrastructure takes longer to change a, a building, those policy kinds of things, the structure and incentives, mandate and culture. Now we can argue, I think, over beer, if that's really the, the relative speeds, like is that really faster or not? But realizing that because things move at a different pace, you might need to work in a different way. That is especially difficult, I think, for designers who work in digital, who then come into service design and say, oh, now I need to think about print and physical space and what the call center is doing. Because before, you can do agile delivery and push out a new release every sprint and do continuous delivery kinds of things. DevOps has not, that, that sort of continual delivery has not hit call centers or buildings yet. <laughs> and so you might need to work at a different pace. It also hasn't hit policy or legislation. And I actually am kind of glad. I'm not sure I would want to have the law change every two weeks on a sprint. <laughs> um, so, so I think we would end up in, in much worse shape if, uh, if that was the case. So, so it's a good idea that sometimes things need to be slower, even though it can be frustrating. And uh, this is Stuart Brand, who uh, really popularized that. So if you, you think about that speed, you would think about a building. So the things, like the furnishings in the building, we can move really quickly. But when we get down to the actual structure that we're in, a lot harder and the site that we're on is sort of non-negotiable. Um, we could knock down this hotel, we could build something else here, but we don't get to decide that the surface area is bigger. Um, and so that's the same thing as, as we're dealing with. Now, because things move at a different pace, it's hard to jump between them. That you actually have, to, that they naturally, if you have a river and a riverbank, they're moving at different speed, that there's actually not a lot of transfer between the riverbank and the river. You don't, you, you don't see lots of fish jumping out, lots of deer jumping in, um, that, uh, and going back and forth between it, because it takes too much energy to transfer between those two, two different speeds. Um, this is actually the fastest walkway in the world um, in an airport. It's in Toronto Pearson. And so there's a, a regular speed one, this one is about three times as fast. And if you just tried to go and, and jump on it, you would end up just sort of like falling down from the inertia. Um, and so they actually have to have this special kind of gradual speeding up. So you get on, and it's going slow, and then the panels come closer together, and it goes faster and faster and faster, and you're whipping by the people who only took the pedestrian route or the regular travelator. The problem is that when you come to the end, everybody's kind of spread out uh, and uh, on this. So, so you start small, and then this collapses, and everybody gets squished <laughs> at the end of it. So, you ha so managing moving between different speeds is really one of the big challenges of transformation. You might be like, go, 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 digital transformation. And like the IT people say, we don't have the infrastructure to do that. Um, and that's going to take uh, a long time to procure and to develop the talent to do it. So when we think about service architecture, we need to respect the speed that those different things work at. Now, you can try to work faster. It's not to say you have to just accept the status quo of how it's always been done. But 
Also, don't expect everything to work just the way that you want it to, or just the way that you're comfortable with whichever level that you normally would operate at. If you are a policy person, or maybe an analyst, and now you need to actually move into that continuous delivery with Agile and, and DevOps for digital, that speeding up can be uncomfortable, um, as well as the going the other way down into those major cultural kinds of transformations. These things are really about giving you new lenses to see within and across your organization and to see what kind of challenges might happen from it. So when you think about those elements, there's different questions you can ask. So uh, you can look across your whole architecture. This is a design team in Columbia mapping out the architecture for government um, from experiences down to, to kind of bedrock. Um, not because of me, they were already working on something like this. And so that can give you a whole picture view. It can help you see the big picture. But each of those, and you can follow, you can't read that, Haraka um is awesome. But when we think about experience, the questions are, what actually happens in the real world? And you have to go out in the real world in order to understand that. I think we know that here as designers. Not everybody who's on a transformation project is going to agree with that. So what is the actual journey? What's the experience that, that people have? Uh, where do they interact? What touch points do they have? And how do we design and orchestrate those touch points? It's kind of the wheelhouse of service design. Um, Operations, less so, though we're, I think we're getting more and more into that, of how do we actually do this in terms of the backstage portions of service design. Um, this is a warehouse that supplies all kinds of public sector organizations from jails to, um, to hospitals in British Columbia. And so looking at, at what happens underneath to actually make those logistics happen. Um, and than the actual space that you have. It's like, do we have the right space? I was talking to somebody who just launched a, a new program, a big commitment from government to support people in this particular area, set up a new call center, staff are recruited, and the staff have the call center space, but there's no place for them to park, and the call center isn't near any major transit route. And so... So people have to park anywhere from, if you're lucky, half a kilometer away, up to a kilometer away from the call center. And they're having attrition problems and recruiting problems because there isn't a, the physical infrastructure for employees to get there. Um, and so they're trying to actually find money to build, a, like the land is there, but there's no parking lot. So they're trying to pull money from other places to say, oh, if we're going to really make this call center work, we need a parking lot, which is not something that you usually plan for when you're planning a call center. Um, you're thinking about, oh, what's the IVR tree, the, the, the interactive voice response tree that people are going to navigate before they get? And what are our tiers of support? Um, it's not, I have never thought, oh, I need to think about parking. But sometimes you do. Um, and this is actually from a project where we redesigned offices to encourage more self-serve as people were coming into a government counter. Um, but so you can actually start to think about, well, what does that infrastructure look like? And then the decision DNA. What are the ways that people make decisions and how do they shape that? So how is that policy actually made? And to ask how well does the policy and the strategy and the governance actually fit with what we want to do. Are there going to be problems later? Um, and to be able to, to be aware of that, it can be particularly um, in my own career, moving from kind of digital to service design to organizational design work, um, that in making those transitions, at first I didn't think... Uh, I didn't realize how much policy would impact what we were doing. And so we were doing those service design projects, and we'd say, oh, here's a really cool thing that we can do. And we'd get told, no, you actually can't. Why not? It's really cool. It's better for people. Doesn't matter because the policy says you can't, for whatever reason. One of those, and so now we're off 
to be architects to understand, well, why and what are the reasons for that? Um, structure and incentives um, around things like HR policy of how we hire people and what our, our obvious rewards are. In Canada, um, we have a f the Mounties, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Their headquarters is in Ottawa. So to progress in the organization, if, you're if you are the best and brightest and ambitious, your focus is on Ottawa, our, our nation's capital, and not on the community that you might be in. And that has led to some pretty egregious kind of derelictions of, of good community policing. Because, and that's, I've, it hasn't really been a, that the focus of senior leadership is oriented to Ottawa and not to the needs of their community. Um, and so there's some pretty big structural challenges there for them. Um, and then thinking about mandate, we have our sort of stated mission, vision, and values. It's important to understand that because it's often something that you can align with or run against, and you want to align with it. Um, it's often not worth running against, but it's just kind of a constraint in your world. Culture uh, is sometimes even more significant. Um, that as we look at that, that there's a big impact. I worked for an IT consulting company uh, had a couple floors in an office building. In Canada, if you smoke in winter, there's not a lot of choices. And so you have to go down the elevator to the car park. And there is like this marked area where you are permitted to smoke so that you don't freeze. And the vice president for that office was a smoker. And so everybody else who smoked got to hang out with him twice a day. And funny enough, the inner circle in that office were all smokers. And people who got promoted were smokers at a much higher rate than the general population or the office as a whole. And so there is nothing in the HR handbook about promoting people who smoke. But in actuality, in the culture there, just because of how that works and Canadian weather and the time that you spend, that happened. There's a, this is actually not an unusual thing just because of Canada. It's such a common thing. It was an episode of Friends. You may or may not remember that Rachel quit smoking and then was no longer in the inner circle. Um, so, and then thinking about context, you need to be aware of what else is going on in the world so that you know what is meaningful to your customers and where your competitors are, are, are heading. And if you're in the public sector, you might think, well, I don't really think of it as competitors. But other jurisdictions, whether they're countries or states or towns, have different things to offer, and it's, it's worth thinking about. Um, and the competition may end up being you know, somebody else, or it just may be a comparison for you. How big do you think these flowers are if you were not in my workshop yesterday? Somebody tell me. They, five centimeters, 10 centimeters, 30 centimeters, 80 centimeters. Donna, you weren't in the workshop. How big are they? I have no idea. You have no idea. Guess. They are enormous. <laughs> this is a winter festival with my kids. but. Uh, and until you actually can see the big picture and see the context, you don't know the meaning of things. And so all your other transformation work, if you're not aware of context, is going to be challenged. So that's the cake, which is cut off here. But um, delivery with experiences, interactions, and operations, foundations with infrastructure, decision DNA, organizational structure and incentives, bedrock with mandate, culture, and context. Every major failure that I've had in my career has, after about you know, the first few years as I kind of figured out how to be a better designer, but once I kind of got that, it was because I missed something here. It wasn't because I didn't have good designers or a good team or a good process. It's because I got blindsided by one of those other layers. And it's like, oh, actually, this new streaming video thing you're working on, we're thinking about changing the infrastructure not to have streaming anymore. Oh. Huh, really? <laughs> That's interesting. Um, 
So design alone is not enough to succeed in transformation. You need to have awareness and partnerships across these different layers in the organization. And these let you ask different questions. Uh, they let you ask better questions. And if you ask bigger questions, what are we doing across our whole architecture, it lets you solve better problems. So if you ask bigger questions, you will solve better problems. And this framework helps me ask bigger questions, not just the question for the immediate thing right in front of me, but how is it going to work in the real world? And that helps me actually spend my energy and my time on solving the best kinds of things I can solve, a better problem, um, than to say, oh, I, I can fix this or this or this with the time I have now. Which one is the best use of my time? And so the questions that, that you can ask from that about what's valuable, what's important, and how we're going to deliver it can help you manage that. If you think about the... The service journey, if we think about that journey map that people have, you can actually look at those big stages in a journey map, and you can start to ask questions in each of those stages across the service architecture. So you can say, if, we, if this is the experience, then what are we doing here that makes the experience be that way? Um, if, if that's the journey, why? And there will be answers that are different but important at each of those levels. And um, something that I'm working on is a, a workshop tool where we just have a conversation. It's a big canvas poster like the business model canvas, but with those different elements, just to say, where are we at? What are the different experiences, interactions, and operations? And what's our infrastructure, our decision DNA? our structure and incentives, mandate, culture, and context. And that you end up being asked to work on this, but you'll need, to, in actuality, you need to work in that middle layer, in the foundations, often to get real lasting transformation. And you'll get blindsided if you're not aware of the bottom bedrock uh, operations at, at play. Not very often do you get to change the mandate of something, unless you're like the prime minister and setting up a new cabinet, <laughs> but, uh, um, but that you need to be aware of it. So very early, um, I can send you PDFs later uh, if you want to try it out. So thinking about different paces, service architecture is a way to have strategic conversations. They have better conversations inside your organization. The experience becomes the touchstone for transformation. So that's an, an important point. It's not just about diagnostics when you think about service architecture. It's about motivation. Um, yesterday at my workshop, we talked a little bit about the idea of boundary objects. That this is uh, a boundary object is a bridging artifact, something that brings people together so that they can see their perspective in common, even if they disagree. So even if they don't have the exact same perspective on something, they can look and say, okay, I see this thing, this prototype, this journey map, this uh, service walkthrough, and I can see what my uh, work is and reflected in that. And so by designing those kinds of things, you can bring people together as a bridge. And that's one of the superpowers, I think, of design in transformation, that you can become that bridge and that connector in those different people places that need to collaborate. And if you create a vision for the future customer experience, that becomes one of the most powerful boundary objects for transformation. So you actually can think about that journey that you'd like to have and say, how do we align ourselves in order to deliver it at these different levels? So it becomes a question not just of diagnosing, but of changing, of actually saying, what do we need to do in order to deliver this new experience? What do we need to change in order to deliver on this vision? And when you have a compelling vision for a future customer experience, that motivates people. They're excited. They're like, I want to be part of that. I'm going to be able to, to have the energy I need to work across those different layers and to coordinate them. It energizes you. And uh, I worked for a large cable company client once, this little, in a, the interactive division there, and 
that this little team of 10 people created two concept videos, super rough, um, around, one around the future of communication and one around the future of content, and thinking about how that worked in a multi-channel universe. And those two little two-minute clips were so compelling, they shaped the strategy for a Fortune 500 company, because the C-suite saw them and said, that really expresses some of the things I've been thinking, and I can really buy into the other things that you're talking about. Now, that was awesome, though I'm not sure they really had expected to have that much attention, and so maybe they didn't think through some of the things, so there was a little bit of a challenge there sometimes. But um, here's a, a few more stories just to finish up. Um, in uh, Canada, we have a a card like the Opal card in Sydney, where you tap on and tap off. It's a stored value card. The problem is you can load your card at home on your computer. If you have an account, you can walk to the bus, you tap, and it says you have no money. Yes. Does that happen at Opal, too? It happens in Canberra. It happens in Canberra. Um, it can take three days. And why does it take three days? Fuck <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well... I'm not sure about here, but in, in Canada, it's because the system's not wireless, and the buses sink when they go back to the bus barn. And, and so until the bus has gone back to go to bed at night, that it doesn't know anything about what happened that day. And so if you do it that day and try to use it, good luck. Um, so they assure me it's being addressed. One of the biggest things... Healthcare.gov in the United States, massive, massive failure in IT led to the creation of the US Digital Service and 18F um, because it was a technical failure but driven by cultural and political commitments. So uh, it was procured and developed in a traditional way, a prime contractor, 80 different subcontractors. When people tried to flag problems, there had been the president of the United States committed to a certain launch date. We're not going to, uh, there was not a willingness to stand out in front of that. First day, I think it was nine people got insurance out of the millions that tried to visit the site. Um, so, uh, so you can point the finger at technology, but a lot of it was about culture and, uh, and needing to change that. And that's one of the greatest things that people like the Digital Transformation Agency here in Australia, GDS in the UK, and 18F and USDS are trying to do. Um, landlords and tenants worked on a project to um, help people if they had problems renting or being rented to. Um, and everybody said, we can only take evidence by fax or by mail or in person. Um, and I say, it's in the act. I kept saying it's in the act. It's in the legislation. That's why. And I was going to tell people, oh, it's, it's in the legislation that controls them. And then we go, and I read it, and it doesn't say anything about the kinds of, of evidence. Now, that... that uh, whether or not somebody just sort of said that one day, or if it became folklore, or maybe it's in a different piece of legislation that I haven't tracked down yet. But, but there's a, a real question of, like, what do people actually believe the service architecture is, and what is it actually? So that's where you get back to that archaeology problem or opportunity if you really want to change something. Um, the implication of only taking evidence that way means that if you wanted to... Um, upload uh, digital photos of the damage that a tenant had done to your suite, you couldn't. You had to send in a USB drive or a CD, and they would put that in your physical folder. Um, <laughs> so that's why we're asking, why do you do this? It's like, oh, it's the law. So you don't need to solve for everything with this, though. You ask, where are the risks and opportunities for your service architecture? Who do you need to collaborate with? And then thinking about what do you know and not know? Where, how important are those different things? How unpredictable they are? And you can kind of think, oh, okay, these are some of my gotchas up here. They're important. I don't know what's going to happen with them. That can help me predict how they're going to uh, land. Now, I have a, a couple more stories. I'm going to go through this one really quick. We had a problem with how people got restraining orders. 
lots of complexity. We went out in the field and mapped that because people were pointing fingers. And we said, what does it actually happen? And then we ran co-design workshops and mapped policy options at the bottom to the journey at the top um, to be able to say, this is what we could do better. Um, because the problem was at a policy and a, and a, a connection level between these different places of, of in the complex system that they had. That's going to take three years to implement. Same client looking at how their staff actually proceed in uh, their own careers. How do we actually think about that? So if we look at the services that are delivered, the experiences that their clients have, what does that mean in terms of how we organize ourselves and what kinds of training and roles the staff should have? So we went out and did a bunch of interviews and did mapping across that. So over 150 field interviews, six co-design workshops with staff, had new models for professional development, new ways of thinking about those roles, um, and increasing collaboration between uh, the different regional areas of that ministry. So just to finish up, we need to see the system. We need to be able to face complexity if we're going to actually deliver on transformation. And that transformation, when we think about service innovation and transformation, is really organizational innovation and transformation. When you have service architecture, you look at your organization, find those barriers, the opportunities, and especially the collaborators. Who else should be in the room so you avoid those gotchas? And that the compelling experience for the future becomes a touchstone that will motivate change. So I have one last story. Uh, this is the Hakalea. It's a replica of a Polynesian boat uh, built by a consortium of people in, in, from Hawaii to Tahiti. And they wanted to preserve traditional uh, ways of life and traditional knowledge. And so they sail like the 3,000 miles from Hawaii to Tahiti with no modern navigation at all. And uh, that, so they sail all around Polynesia in a traditional way. And so they, there's experienced people, and then kids come on board, and it's this amazing experience. Understanding that you have to navigate complexity means that we need to develop and preserve and advance skills so that we can take on some of those uncharted things. So I need your help just uh, at the end here. If we can, uh, you guys give me a hand. I want you to pull out your phones. If you pull out your phone. And then turn on your flashlight. Okay? And then I want you to stand up. And then I want you to count with me. Okay? So we're going to go one, two, three. Then we're going to look. You look around, and we have to look to each other to learn those skills. I don't know if there's like the elders that we can go and sail with, but that as we look at a community like this, that I have great optimism for the future of design, both here in Australia and throughout the world. And I'm really glad that you've had me be part of it today. So thank you so much. Uh, I hope you take these ideas and you start something interesting with them. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from Service Design Canberra 2016. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.